This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the 52nd episode of the National Security Conversations. The Maoist insurgency continues to be a major internal security threat to the Indian state. In April this year, Naxals attacked a BJP convoy in Dandewada and killed several people, including a sitting member of the Legislative Assembly. A month later, in May 2019, 15 commandos and a civilian were killed after the Naxal attack in the uh, uh, Gadchiroli district of Maharashtra. The Maoist threat was once declared to be the single biggest internal security challenge by the then Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. Over the years, the Indian state has made major strides in its fight against the Naxalite challenge. So, what is the state of the Naxalite or the Maoist insurgency today and where do we go from here? In a recent paper, a scholar from the Observer Research Foundation, Dr. Niranjan Sahu, argued that left-wing extremism in India is in terminal decline. That is certainly good news. So to discuss these issues, I have with me the author of that paper, Dr. Niranjan Sahu. Um, Sahu is a senior fellow with the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. He anchors studies and programs on democracy, human rights, federalism, electoral reforms, insurgencies, among others. He has so far written two books. And his third book on exclusion and insurgencies in India will soon be uh, published. Um, as I said earlier, the reason why we have him today is because he wrote a very much acclaimed paper um, entitled Half a Century on India's Maoist Insurgency, an Appraisal of State Response. Welcome to the National Security Conversation, Dr. Sahu. Niranjan, if I may begin by asking you, what are some of the um, key arguments in this fascinating paper that you have written uh, for the Observer Research Foundation? This is quite a uh, complex paper uh, because uh, I've uh, almost taken a tour of uh, nine states uh, in India which uh, in different majors have faced uh, Maoist insurgency for last uh, 20 years. So this is based on field work? Field work, uh, combination of field work and a lot of desk work. Also I've spoken to a lot of experts uh, like Mahindra Kumavat, uh, K. Vijay Kumar, who, people who led uh, these operations in different states, uh, commanding VSF and CRPF. And I have spoken to some of those experts also who have been tracking this issue for a long time. Uh, so it's a combination of both. Uh, uh, basically, I have actually looked at uh, the state response uh, in terms of uh, counterinsurgency perspective. Uh, and um, my basic uh, sort of uh, findings are uh, three, four major findings. One. Uh, the entire counterinsurgency uh, operation started in real sense uh, mid 2000 when Maoist insurgency spread over more than 200 mm -hmm. districts, as you know, mm -hmm. and, and in several states, almost like uh, Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, or Bihar, they were almost uh, dominating over 90% of districts at one point. So, and then the kind of daring attacks they launched in uh, several uh, states, including killing the uh, Home Minister of Andhra Pradesh and attacking the Chief Minister of uh, Andhra Pradesh, Chandra Naidu, had a narrow escape and then the, almost killing the entire uh, 
tough leadership of Congress in 2013 in Chhattisgarh, where people like Mahinder Kama, Nand Kumar, the Congress chief, and VC Sukla, some of those people are killed. And Ajit Jogi had a narrow escape, and he's still now cannot walk actually. He's immobile. So, so this actually weakened up the states, and both states as well as center put up. I think I I would say it's a terrific case of cooperative federalism in which you know both acted because all of them faced a situation that they thought the reach of the state no longer run. Maoists are gaining legitimacy in different way because they are running parallel government. They are providing alternative services and. Also, instant justice like Kangaru Court and other thing. Mm -hmm. So, so based on that, uh, that coin counter insurgency measure was you know put off, and uh, I think results are very much you know discernible. You can see three, four results. One in last five years, the Maoist related incidents have come down almost seventy percent decline, and the number of Maoist actually killings uh, security forces used to be very high uh, by two thousand thirteen. Now, if you look at the latest data by two thousand eighteen, it has come down almost one fifth. Uh, in fact, more number of Maoists. In fact, uh, last uh, 2008, 18, the data, if you look at, uh, 230 Maoists were killed by the security forces, where only 70 security forces lost life last year. So this clearly gives, a, if you look at counterinsurgency, you know, kind of data, this points to a kind of you know decline that we probably never thought in the mid 2000s. Okay, Dr. Sir, I think before we move any further, it would be useful for us to have an overview of the evolution of the Naxalite insurgency in India, say, starting in the late 1960s. So, if you could uh, give us a snapshot of what happened since the late 1960s up until now, uh, very briefly for, for the sake of our viewers. This is a kind of protracted insurgency which is continuing for more than 50 years. The cutoff date is like 67, you know, it began uh, with Naxalwari rebellion in West Bengal, uh, where, you know, uh, some of those uh, rebels from the uh, Communist Party of India who left uh, the party and, you know, took uh, uh, armed, you know, kind of uh, measures because they wanted to capture the power and, you know, bring revolution. And they were inspired by the Maoist uh, ideology uh, from China. Uh, so, uh, people like Kanu Sanyal, uh, people like uh, Charu Majumdar, who are, you know, the uh, architect of that right. uh, rebellion, uh, were inspired by the communist ideology of uh, uh, taking power by the barrel of gun and, you know, and then establishing a communist rule. So, it started with that and that was a much smaller movement confined to West Bengal. But, you know, when once the state actually uh, tried to uh, take uh, strong security actions and, you know, uh, finish most of the top leadership, including uh, people like uh, arresting Kanu Sanyal and uh, Majumdar also was arrested and he died uh, in the jail uh, after a few days. Uh, so, that uh, people thought actually uh, is end of the story because this is a small rebellion of, you know, people who are uh, fighting against the uh, land inequity and, you know, against the Jamidari system or feudal system. They thought it's over. But, you know, that, uh, that, that rebellion actually spread to several states later on in uh, Sikakulam of, you know, Andhra Pradesh, Odisha, Ganjam and uh, Bihar. It took a revolutionary form. And uh, you had uh, in the 80s, uh, in fact, uh, it took a much more stronger kind of, you know, avatar in the form of PWG. You know, those who know Andhra Pradesh uh, People's War Group became the most dreaded kind of, you know, left-wing insurgency organizations. And then MCC, uh, Maoist Communist Center in Bihar. And, and they were able to dominate almost in Andhra Pradesh, to just give an example, almost 18 districts of Andhra Pradesh were completely dominated by Maoist, especially what you call Telangana today. Uh, so, in a sense, actually, this, this was was like you no know, going in a cycle uh, after cycle like they were suppressed and you know, eliminated in some sense by top leadership but then the ideology it's actually uh, 
uh, what you call the seeds of that you know sort of attraction of that ideology used to remain because your ground realities of inequity underdevelopment backwardness you know exploitation all that so this used was to not exist. A, this was not a new thread this evolved over these various decades and yet in the in mid 2000s the prime minister of india had to say that yeah. this is the biggest internal. so right. why why did that why did we get to that stage did the previous administrations fail yeah. or was yeah. the strategy wrong usually in any uh, country where you have insurgency the first thing the state used to do is basically send the police send the troops and uh, capture the leaders eliminate some of the tough leaders and quell it and uh, uh, that actually can you know work to an extent you know for initially but unless you address with development and governance you know measures you know looking at their core root causes why such insurgency grow and sustains mm -hmm. uh, it won't actually so that's the reason why first cycle and second cycle this problem actually uh, although top leaders were eliminated many of them were jailed by the states in uh, both uh, luxembourg and as well as pidol and mcc in bihar and andhra pradesh uh, they actually were not able to root it out the, because the ideology its attraction remained and then the ground reality about uh, inequality and you know the exploitation all that used to exist uh, so so this is where actually they landed in uh, the third cycle which is actually still continuing uh, with 2004 uh, all these splinter groups actually which had weakened because of the you know, state actions uh, especially through law and order measures they actually decided that you know if they have to fight indian state they have to really come together the leaders were imprisoned or eliminated and yet it survived why because the attraction of that particular ideology that you know bringing a kind of equal society in which you know the poorest of the poor will you know rule over their own lives so that used to attract lot of uh, you know cadres of the thing. are you saying that's not attracting anymore no that is still attracting but i would say uh, if you look at the last 4 5 years of number of recruits you know that uh, communist party of india maoist uh, which they formed in 2004 with all the 40 uh, different uh, factions from different states uh, initially they attracted a lot of cadres because they were spread over 12 13 states and the ideology still reigned because that was the time when your economy had open and uh, you had lot of uh, violation happening on in terms of you know land acquisition mining uh, illegal mining which you know failed uh, kind of you know a uh, lot of uh, what you called uh, uh, illegal you know displacement in which companies were you know displacing thousands of you know adivasi in different parts so that also created sense of uh, grievances injustice and state was also in many way you know complicit with these companies you know there was corruption and you know other kind of way of angle so that actually led to a series of uh, smaller movement in within those many states in fact orissa you had chashimulia sangathan in uh, korapur kalahandi that kbk famous kbk districts was prominent because millions of adivasi they lost their land actually to different companies uh, for uh, you know manganese for iron ore you know even for coal uh, other projects so in a sense they formed these groups later on they this group when they didn't get justice they got radicalized they took up arms what is the state of those groups now now i think uh, uh, the state especially like orissa and west bengal they have done a actually quite a decent amount of uh, work in terms of addressing their you know uh, grievances like orissa navin patnaik government has done pioneering work in terms of reaching out to those uh, landless you know adivasis giving them you know land record that patta this free distribution and then the 2006 uh, that uh, uh, forest dweller act you know which uh, central government enacted also came very handy for many of them because they got a legal right to over their you know forest as well as their land so that also brought down you know the grievances so in other words um, correct me if i am wrong dr sahu you are making a connection between the exclusion that's your forthcoming book in some ways 
poverty, exclusion, um, um, say malnourishment, etc., etc. To next slide insurgency. Now that's a some people some people dispute that argument and say such a distinction doesn't such a such a correlation doesn't exist because you have poverty in various parts of the country, but you don't see um, next slide insurgency or 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 terrorism in in all those places. What you see here is a linkage that you are trying to trying to make. How do you justify that link? That's a very uh, good question. In fact, uh, that's the crux of my you know book uh, where I've been arguing this entire uh, Maoist insurgency in its third cycle, especially which is you know prevalent in the central India, part of uh, most part of the central India and that come under fifth schedule area. Mm -hmm. Fifth schedule area is you know where actually you have substantial Adivasi populations. Mm -hmm. It's not like sixth schedule area in the northeast. So, fifth schedule area is it has a different kind of governance system. When the constitution was enacted, so fifth schedule area which uh, largely had impoverished Adivasis and they didn't have a voice or any kind of agency. So they were given a kind of new charter by you know the drafter of the constitutions like Ambedkar and uh, Nehru that, uh, that they will have a, a specialized administrative uh, system, they will have governor to protect their interest, they will have tribal sub plan, they will have uh, different kind of you know, acts which will protect that nobody can go and acquire their land. Uh, just like that, you know, you do in other parts. So many things were protected for them, and then their cultural rights, you know, their uh, sort of heritage, other things, language, other things were also constitutionally protected. So they were given a different kind of, you know, uh, this thing, vision of governance in on the fifth schedule. Mm -hmm. But later on, uh, subsequent, you know, democratic process where actually those areas were actually ruled by the non adivasis mostly. If you look at just Jharkhand, if you live out for some times, like uh, the Jharkhand state was created as an Adivasi, you know, kind of so a that's, that's a larger macro yeah. governance issue. Yeah. What were some of the other, um, say, grassroots level issues? See, the issue was actually like you created a vision of a state, you had uh, elaborate, you know, kind of uh, institutions and, you know, legal set of uh, to give Adivasis, uh, you know, those primitive tribes in those areas a sort of uh, you know inclusive governance and they will be participant and they will be the main actor. That didn't actually happen uh, largely because uh, one uh, in many states like you know if you look at Odisha or even uh, Telangana uh, in uh, Madhya Pradesh or uh, Bihar state one didn't have the capacity initial years you know initial decades. Uh, so, there was actually issue of lack of governance and almost state absence was there in many part what you call Dandakaran area, entire that uh, area huge stretch of a covering 4-5 states, state was almost absent in any you know form and state wherever it was present, it was present in a very violent form like uh, you had forest uh, guards. They were the most actually uh, what you call exploitative kind of you know, arm of the state and uh, they used to exploit uh, Adivasis, uh, you know, even Adivasis accessing, you know, their non-timber forest produce and, you know, even Tendulif and other things for their survival, they have to pay some certain amount to this say. And the second, the police used to be the in most violent and exploitative form in many areas because police stations were few, but wherever they were, they used to, they can just get them and, you know, if anybody, they can arrest and put them behind the bar and they used to rot because of your judicial system which takes years and Adivasis especially were not convergent with your kind of you know, Anglo-Saxon justice system. They simply don't know how to uh, go to the court, approach a other thing or go to a thana. And then the final nail was actually the administrative system, entire administrative system geared in that area had more than 90% of you know those uh, people who lord, lorded over those bureaucracy were actually non-Adivasi. They came from other parts. 
through a central service and another. So, in a sense, they were not actually convergent with the reality of that uh, area, you know, vast regions. Uh, and uh, if you go by the, uh, that famous B.D. Samas uh, report uh, that uh, who was a commissioner for SST, he says that, you know, these administrators used to behave like they're heaven born, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, they have come and these Adivasis are actually poor souls. So, they need to be really, uh, you know, uh, reformed and, you know, in many way purified. purified. So, that sort of attitude in many way. That How did that change? Has it changed over over time? Because if you're saying that… It has, it, it has, it has. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, the at least couple of structural changes which has brought uh, significant change. One is PESA, that uh, Panchayat Extension Act uh, 1996, which was, you know, uh, is a path-breaking legislation which extended Panchayat Raj to the Adivasi areas, uh, Bhuriya Committee, that famous Bhuriya Committee. Uh, so, what, what it did is actually it established uh, Gram, Sura, Gram Sabha in uh, Adivasi areas and Gram Sabha became a final authority in terms of uh, if a minor uh, kind of, you know, mining uh, thing has to be uh, awarded, then Gram Sabha has to give the permission. Right? Uh, then uh, Adivasi will have control over naturally, so they will get a certain percentage of, you know, that benefits from there on over forest. So, uh, like Forest uh, Right Act uh, uh, 2006 also was another seminal, you know, kind of legislation which protect their way. And then the third, I think, important thing that happened in 2013 UPA government was Land Acquisition Act. While one can claim land acquisition has a lot of fault, uh, you know, fault lines and a lot of problems in terms of it takes years, but for Adivasi, for those areas in fifth schedule, uh, you know, states, uh, it came as a big boon because land acquisition used to be, you know, that illegal acquisition of land used to be rampant and they had no protection, legal protection because uh, 1894 kind of you know, act uh, really allowed state to run, you know, the way it, it liked. So, that actually stopped. So, now land acquisition cannot happen just the way it used to happen. So, these are actually given a, a lot of protection to these Adivasis in those areas and it has also given some kind of voice because now most of them are actually Panchayat heads and uh, district chairman, you know, all, all these, you know, especially Adivasis are almost 90% uh, if the fifth schedule areas are dominated by Adivasis. They may not be there in the Lok Sabha, you know, uh, as MLA level, but at the Panchayat level, at the third year level, they have a significant presence. And that has given them a voice and, you know, sense of, you know, what you call belongingness that, you know, they now see that this is something on which they can influence. And today, uh, mind you, you have Panchayats are getting huge amount of resources from your, you know, central as well as states because of, you know, your finance commission uh, recommendations. So, this is interesting, Dr. Sahu. What you are basically trying to say, if I, if I understood you correctly, is that there is a clear link between, say, poverty, exclusion and uh, disempowerment uh, and um, um, insurgency on the other, at least in this particular case. And when the state took measures to break this relationship, as it were, you are looking at a decline in the Naxalite insurgency in central India, as it were. Now, clearly this is not only, as you argue correctly in your papers, is not only the breaking of the uh, relationship between exclusion, disempowerment and in insurgency, but also the uh, anti-Naxalite, anti-Maoist strategies that were put in place by the, by the, by the Indian, Indian government. So, to that extent, how do you evaluate the Indian state's uh, response, both at the central and at the state level, um, to the Naxalite activities in, in all of these states that you just mentioned? See, uh, I just explained about the improvement in governance and, you know, development scenario right. and uh, this... Uh, uh, lot better than what it used to be two decades before. I think now a significant chunk of uh, citizens there, they see states in more positive, you know, form because of, you know, delivery of a lot of services and uh, enactment of a lot of, you know, the protection of their entitlement and rights. All that has given them that, you know, state is really looking after their... Uh, so, in a sense, 
uh, this is where actually that coin strategy if we go back to the uh, coin literature, counterinsurgency literature that population centric uh, winning hearts and minds strategy has actually paying off in some way. But also the center as well as states have also succeeded in you know following the other uh, aspects of the coin that is uh, the enemy centric approach you know suffocating and uh, targeting the top leadership and you know uh, taking away uh, most of the you know cadres from you know the uh, the main CPI Maoist organizations, I think to a great extent they have succeeded in last 10 to 12 years if you take a sort of period like I would say uh, 2007 entire thing began especially with uh, 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 PG Dambaram at the helm of affairs as home minister. Uh, he started I think one major policy decisions that to center will bear most of the cost of this counterinsurgency whatever states are doing because states primarily in, in a federal setup are you know are the main stakeholder in law and order restoration. So, they have to be in the front and center has to back them with resources and strategy. So, center came out with that innovative policy about uh, uh, two major policies in 2007. One is about uh, uh, that uh, security related expenditure SRE in which the center uh, stated that it will bear most of the money spent on police modernization because mm -hmm what these states were lacking is that they had very you know very very weak uh, police force. In fact, in most of the Naxalites area you know if you look at that entire fifth schedule area whether it is Orissa, Bihar or the thing uh, or Chhattisgarh, they their police stations used to be just namesake two constable one you know SI mm -hmm. and with no arms and training or the thing they, they were they are just actually uh, there to guard and you know protect uh, especially the VIP movement beyond that nothing. So, in a sense uh, that actually allowed the Maoist you know to run a uh, sort of had a free run and the way they wanted to do. So, that uh, had to be stopped. You have to have an effective police as a fast kind of you know point uh, of uh, sort of you know check against any kind of insurgency. So, center did uh, spend uh, came out with a um, police modernization scheme and allowed states to you know buy weapons, uh, provide training or the thing and uh, the second I think biggest step was. Uh, uh, rehabilitation and uh, surrender policy center came out it said that it they will provide 1.5 lakh for any surrender eh? and if they sur sur surrender with guns you know or any kind of you know, high uh, sort of uh, capability uh, uh, weapons so that they will get also extra money and they will get a monthly compensation for 3 years like uh, 3 to 4000 rupees and also possible employment. I think uh, that actually worked uh, in case of Andhra Pradesh because this provided Andhra Pradesh a, a huge leg room and Andhra Pradesh came out with a uh, surrender policy that actually made thousands of you know these uh, cadres actually surrender and it became a major success which later on Odisha, Bihar, even Chhattisgarh tried uh, with some successes. So, the third thing I think was uh, improving the comeback capabilities that Cobra school they opened I think 38 Cobra schools you have now where uh, they have created uh, you know yes in Chhattisgarh several states now have uh, this is actually a replication of you know that uh, Greyhound model of Andhra Pradesh right. which succeeded in eliminating most of the top uh, mouse leadership. So, that model has also been placed and this is also 100 percent funded by the center. And the fourth thing what actually center did is I think uh, that actually helped the states is creating a unified command. They for four or five states actually like uh, West Bengal, Odisha, Chhattisgarh and uh, uh, Bihar they created a central command in which both intelligence, uh, policing and then coordination from the cabinet secretary level was actually um, uh, you know managed and actionable intelligence you know all kind of you know uh, sending paramilitary troops 
these things actually happened in a um, sort of seamless way and that actually helped because states also came together and they formed their own coordinations you know uh, in lot of time you have seen andhra pradesh and uh, orissa police uh, have done coming operation together and they have succeeded in, in many cases eliminating some of the top leadership and arresting so this actually i think that uh, security kind of you know architecture they uh, put uh, basically based on enemy centric approach that you know they have to eliminate top leadership and weaken them but dr sahu one one question i mean if i may expand on this point that you made um, the people centric and the enemy centric which is basically you get into certain negotiations with people and at the same time target the enemy this is not something that is new because if you look at the and as a student of um, uh, the various insurgency movements in india you'd realize that this is something that indian state has practiced all throughout since independence be it in the northeast or even in kashmir for that sure, matter sure. so this is not necessarily something that is imported from the so called coin strategy from the west or something like this is very quintessentially indian as it were would you not agree with that i think uh, partly indian see a lot of these things have come through our own experience if you look at right. uh, the way we handled uh, indian state handled the uh, initial years of naxal uh, after naxal bari was a combination of you know uh, both uh, security also through Uh, taking some of the steps like development uh, like that operation burga uh, in west bengal uh, uh, bandopadhyay you know committee who, who played a major role that you know land need to be redistributed because that issue was about fight over land inequity so if the land is redistributed among them i think and that actually helped west bengal was able to finish naxal uh, uh, this thing uh, insurgency for almost 30 uh, 40 years until you know in around 2000 they you know regrouped again in jungle mall and other places in our actually entire uh, uh, counterinsurgency strategy we have been actually a huge beneficiary from the british system because we were you know in under british system for long time sure, sure. and british were actually handling nationalism when even india was part of the british empire in in the malayan you know yeah. uh, that uh, many many parts uh, it it was actually doing uh, so the british strategy of you know that population centric strategy has remained with us for the long time and that's the reason why you see uh, we haven't uh, we t- until mid uh, 2000 until this when this problem became really you know a major challenge for the indian state and manmohan singh had to say that you know this is the biggest internal security challenge until then we thought actually it is we have to win their hearts because uh, a lot of uh, chief minister in fact like antiramara biju patnaik uh, uh, even nitish kumar used to say openly even shivun shivu suren of you know jharkhand that they are actually misguided youths famous uh, statement of antiramara uh, that uh, they are analu you know like uh, big brothers so they can be brought to you know mainstream so that was the approach till i think mid 2000 okay. but uh, only when uh, we saw actually that they are uh, this this group have become so big and powerful that they can actually eliminate entire political leadership of a you know state they can kill uh, you know uh, home minister of a state they can kill uh, 70 80 you know crpf troops in just one uh, sort of attack they thought uh, this this simply cannot be handled by winning a and then Uh, another thing uh, uh, another thing is also in lot of states they initiated dialogue with maoist to thinking that you know they'll be mainstream like famous uh, rashtrakuta ready uh, you know had a dialogue for one year and they put a ceasefire 
but it didn't work. Similar thing, Sibu Soren did, uh, Navin Patnaik also did in Orissa, it didn't work out actually. Even Mamta Banerjee after she became Chief Minister, she initially did that with, you know, Jungle Mall uh, uh, Pratiraksha Committee, but it didn't work out actually. So, the, the hardline policy that the government adopted uh, was a result of these disappointment? Basically, I think as a, as a last resort, because see, in the for for long time, Indian state uh, never feared about this insurgency. They thought it's an internal insurgency and they're fighting because mostly uh, scheduled caste Adivasis and you know, they're fighting for their rights. In fact, some of the politicians were supportive of this movement because they thought uh, they, they, the state cannot actually bring land reforms because there is so much opposition and all kind of constitutional problems. So probably these are the people who can on their own, you know, go and, you know, probably bring changes within the system by snatching lands and in redistributing. In many states, in fact, uh, politicians supported tacitly you carry on actually until they become a real challenge. Dealing with Maoist insurgency, we have actually come, it has evolved in different stages and state actions took a real sort of, you know, uh, that uh, hard security measures uh, in the mid-2000 uh, came out of compulsion. So, the, but these this hard security measures or the coin strategy in general that we are talking about have not been without blames also. For example, the Supreme Court in 2011, and you mentioned that in your book, um, uh, Salva Jutum, the purification um, um, hunt as it were. It was seen as, as a sort of vigilante group that was set up and then the Supreme Court had to sort of um, um, uh, bring it down. W what do you think about some of these initiatives that the state government yeah, took from time to time? No, that's a very good question. I think uh, Salva Jutum is a big blot uh, in India's uh, uh, you know, record or counter insurgency record. What did Salva Jutum do? It was, you know, uh, created by the uh, Chhattisgarh state, uh, a kind of, you know, vigilant group uh, who were given arms and training by the state and, you know, they are encouraged to take on the Maoist uh, leadership. Uh, so, in a sense, many of them who joined Salajudam were actually rebel Maoist because they had their own internal problems and so state tried to create a kind of, you know, division, with, uh, split within them and, you know, ensure that they kill each other. Uh, which is actually uh, a, a fundamentally, you know, flawed kind of policy when you are, uh, you know, tackling a homegrown insurgency and the state especially, uh, which, uh, you know, is supposed to be the protector, uh, cannot actually indulge uh, this kind it's of, you know, uh, practice, you know, uh, which did. Uh, but uh, but I, I would say, uh, you can't only just blame uh, uh, Chhattisgarh. I think uh, by and large, most of the states uh, which were affected by Maoist insurgency, have resorted to this in some measure or other. Chhattisgarh uh, became a uh, kind of, you know, high uh, light of, you know, uh, this vigilantism uh, is largely because there was large-scale human rights violation. Would you say that uh, the, the Raman Singh government in 2006 had actually um, uh, passed this Chhattisgarh Special uh, Public Services Securities Act? Yes. Um, is, that a, is that a forerunner to Salva Judum or how do you sort of see that in perspective? I think... Uh, See, uh, that's not a uh, complete violation of uh, Supreme Court uh, 2011 judgment, uh, but <laughs> but I think days, so yeah okay. yeah, uh, but I think uh, what Chhattisgarh has done, you have uh, Maharashtra has been doing that for several years, Odisha government has been doing, even you have uh, Jharkhand government also have special uh, forces which are basically you know uh, they recruit tribal youths and you know give them 1500 or 2000 rupees and you know, guns with some basic training to fight uh, and this has been also something that you have seen also in Kashmir. So, I am saying this is uh, nothing, you know, unique about uh, Chhattisgarh, but Salajudam was worst in terms of, because uh, the in sheer intensity and the kind of loss of life and uh, disruption it created had to be stopped and Supreme Court uh, rightfully did that. But I am saying this in some form or other it will continue, the, because uh, one, the state uh, even now, 
uh, although there has been significant improvement in terms of policing and police modernization and with a uh, lot of fortified uh, you know police station in those areas by uh, largely funded by the center still if you look at the numbers the ratio population and you know that uh, ratio of you know police force uh, is still nowhere actually uh, uh, around the global standard even standard uh, like in bihar in odisha in especially in adivasi dominated districts uh, you don't have even uh, uh, 80 or 90 kind of you know this thing uh, police force for 1 lakh population so 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 i'm saying obviously states and state cannot actually hire so many of them and pay them and in the pay them pension because it becomes a major burden for the states etc so the easiest thing to do is to just uh, give them you know for probably for hire them for 5 years uh, because local youth you have lot of actually young population who are looking for jobs so they are ready to even uh, so that's actually is unfortunately happening niranjan i have to ask you this question which is about uh, this is this is controversy about urban nexels uh, you know maharashtra government has been arresting people activists academics intellectuals etc and there's there's a general um, sort of discourse that is that is developing today about uh, that some of these intellectuals or or academics activists who are even remotely um um talking about the need to look at some of those grassroots factors which give up give give rise to say insurgencies are urban nexuses now going by that kind of a logic even you can be accused of being one because you just made a connection between um the local level factors and why they why they give rise to um um say insurgencies although you say that uh, that that needs to be broken and state has to take care of but this is not tolerated to be tolerated at all but what is your what is your take on this on this discourse on urban nexuses uh, where do you stand on this i think this urban <coughs> nexuselism uh, that uh, word is actually bizarre because prime of sea nexuselism is a rural phenomena for all these decades you know in in last more than 5 decades this has been predominantly a rural phenomena and uh, it it has time time to time has received uh, support from the urban intellectuals or activists or the thing and that happens in any moment insurgency movement you look at all over the world uh, in mexico in colombia you know you look at any moment they were in many way the ideologues were all urban intellectuals Uh, but that doesn't mean that you know you uh, categorize them as uh, urban uh, nexuses or everyone who who yeah. tries to problematize the issue no, is that, an urban nexus that's that stems from the vision of a security state when state actually fails to see the kind of good work uh, critical role that these groups have been playing for instance if you look at uh, in many cases uh, whenever you know nexuses used to kidnap or you know uh, uh, do some kind of you know people these are the so called urban nexuses used to play a role in terms of you know releasing and you know, facilitating dialogue so they play a critical role and that need to be appreciated and and lot of them in fact uh, if you look at in the recent rs like sudha bhardwaj and other they for decades they have been you know fighting for the rights of uh, adivasis and they have been uh, they have taken so much a trouble to you know come and defend them you know many of them them who are actually rotting in the jail for uh, uh, for years actually without bail uh, because your judicial system is so slow and adivasis simply cannot actually uh, have the means and uh, even uh, skills to you know defend themselves so in a sense this uh, they should not be you know categorized uh, and put in a box where state treats them as in a kind of pariah that's a very unfortunate development there will be always a mix but you can't categorize them as urban nexal or rural nexals and then uh, and then uh, you know uh, uh, put police actions and take uh, all you're right i mean using, it uh, can't uh, be a black and white discourse it has to be more nuanced uh, debate as the danger is that you know tomorrow you won't act, you'll be missing those critical uh, you know kind of support base and they used to play major role in in 
in many uh, Naxal insurgency, if you look at where it has succeeded politically, it is those critical base uh, who, who you categorize as Nova Naxal played a role of a facilitator. For, for instance, you look at the way uh, that entire thing, uh, peace process happened in uh, Colombia, the FARC, one of the most fearsome Naxal group. The entire negotiation, everything was facilitated by the so-called urban Naxals. Same thing also <laughs> in the Nepal you look at. Right. Many of them uh, were also, uh, you know, mainstream and they were, you know, uh, facilitated to join the, you know, political uh, process. Uh, the entire facilitation happened by the so-called Naxals. So, it will be very unfortunate to, you know, uh, lose that, you know, that critical base because uh, their services are very critical. Of course, out of them, if someone is really doing something against the state or the thing, let the law take its course. But uh, states should not actually become overzealous, you know, to do something in which we lose that critical base. Great. Niranjan, this is my last question. And uh, you argue that uh, the Naxalite insurgency in India is in terminal decline. But look at Gadchiroli, look at Dandewada, look at uh, Saraikela in June, you are looking at a spate of attacks even within this particular year. What, where, where does that leave your argument? See, these uh, attacks uh, are actually, I would say, uh, they are not happening in a regular pace. If you look at uh, sequence of, you know, attacks, uh, you just go back to uh, uh, before 2011. These sort of attacks were happening at a regular, almost every month it had become. Now you are actually seeing once in a six month or a year, you know, this kind of attack. And these attacks are actually happening in two to three places. Just uh, Gachiroli is one district yeah, of Maharashtra and Dantewada. These are the hot spots. You now uh, name me West Bengal or Andhra Pradesh or Bihar or Odisha where actually such attacks are happening. So I'm saying if you look at the data, I think six or seven Maoist, you know, hit states have now almost zero incidents for the last two to three years. So, and then second, if you look at more number of Maoists are getting killed in the last four, five years, almost like uh, five times more than the security forces. So, that's, if you look at counter insurgency literature, this is a strong evidence that they are in a terminal decline. And the third thing, they have lost vast, uh, you know, portion of their, you know, territory. Like, uh, they used to be dominating around 223 district at one point. Of course, it's a scandal because uh, it cannot be so many district because a lot of uh, states actually... Uh, uh, demanded before the center uh, that you know there need because there was a lot of money involved in categorization because of uh, so it was inflated yeah, planning to commission demand and money. used to yeah. give a lot of money yeah. for development other things so that became a scandal but at least around 90 districts were surely you know very badly affected from states okay. if you look at that number now the MHA has dropped in one uh, you know in one step last year 44 districts have been dropped they have become normal you know districts. And then you have around 26 districts which are categorized as high. Out of that, six districts are really, these are tri-junction districts bordering, you know, Chhattisgarh, Odisha, uh, uh, Maharashtra and uh, Andhra Pradesh. See, this is where the activities are happening. And that is, I think, uh, also going to see an end uh, in next uh, few years for the simple reason that government is, especially India government, is investing a hell lot of money in road building because road connectivity Connected. used to, uh, without that, they used to have, it was like a haven, a safer haven for them. And nobody can, you know, get into places like Abujmard. Uh, all that is now slowly changing. You have 11 uh, new roads which are actually uh, in the process where the central government has spent about 12,000 crores. And they have brought out uh, in several places mobile towers, uh, security convoys can freely move. So, all that I am saying and then the sheer security infrastructure that have come up in all these states including combat schools, uh, you know, your greyhounds, uh, cobras and then uh, uh, central uh, that intelligence monitoring and state intelligence monitoring, all that is actually are placed there. 
So they would actually be able to track with your uh, strength of information technology today. So I'm saying regaining that kind of thing, uh, I think, would be very difficult. And then because ground reality is also changing in terms of development and governance, where most narrative of, you know, that state is nowhere and we are providing a better or a better parallel government is actually more or less we are seeing an end. Niranjan, wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.